Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence. We are the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business policy and law. I'm Nathan Dean. Uh, I am a senior policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials policy in Washington, D.C., and I am your host for this episode. So our topic for today is what to expect for the U.S. presidential election season as it kicks off essentially on August 23rd with the first Republican presidential debate. And what should markets be on the look for? We're delighted to be joined by James Maloney, founder and managing partner of Tiger Hill Partners. James is one of the few individuals, in my humble opinion, that truly understands both Wall Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. James has an extensive experience working with boards of directors, C-suite executives, and provides on-hand counsel for clients on public policy, political, and issue advocacy, among other things. Prior to founding Tiger Hill Partners, James was head of public affairs and communications for the American Investment Council and was instrumental during the council's lobbying efforts during the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. James has also led policy and communications for numerous U.S. congressional campaigns. So with all that, James, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Thank you so much, Nathan. And it's great to be with you again. Great. Thank you. Ironically, it's been a year, uh, you know, almost to the date since we uh, last chatted. So, you know... I'd like to just kick it off to ask our guests a little bit about their background. So maybe can you tell us a little bit more about Tiger Hill? How did you come about creating it? And uh, what made you want to be involved in public policy in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I've been, I've been interested and active in, in politics uh, my whole life. Um, but I think it was, it was during the 2012 campaign cycle. Um, I was helping lead policy and communications uh, for a congressional candidate. Uh, at the end of that campaign, I realized really, you know, there's only one place to be if you want to be focused on public policy and politics in a meaningful way, and that's Washington, D.C. Uh, and so I was fortunate in many ways uh, uh, to work for great firms and organizations that challenged my thinking and expanded my view on the way that policy really shapes so much of our lives. And, you know, if you think about it, uh, it shapes industries, it shapes our economy, uh, it moves our country forward. Uh, and so the ability to participate uh, in policy formation, uh, in my opinion, it's a meaningful career uh, and it's a very fulfilling way to contribute to society. Um, so we formed Tiger Hill about four years ago, uh, based on my experience working with government relations and public affairs firms. Uh, we, re- and we sort of realized the need for a modernized approach to this, uh, to this uh, industry. Uh, sort of the first step being that uh, for any public policy or political issue today, um, the the key is a deep understanding of the industries they impact. So having industry expertise is critical. Um, And so that then lends you to uh, have the ability to look at the quality or lack thereof of the public public policies that influence those types of industries. Um, And sort of against this backdrop, there's just a sheer... Looking at the sheer amount of noise that exists in politics today, 
there was a clear need for a firm that can provide a more holistic solution. Uh, so, you know, we work across government relations, across regulatory affairs, uh, but then also introduce uh, policy communications and issue advocacy. Um, so there is a comprehensive solution set for our clients. Uh, and that's what, you know, what we've developed over the past four years. Um, you know, we're a bipartisan firm, um, but I, you know, I think for most of the clients that work with us, they sort of see us as nonpartisan uh, in the sense that uh, effective solutions are often won or lost on the merits, regardless of any sort of partisan lens that is applied to it. Um, so that's what we're thinking about every day. Uh, it's not a zero sum game. Uh, you know, we're thinking about how can we optimize policies across highly regulated industries from financial services uh, to, to healthcare to energy uh, and for the industries where there's not clear guidance yet. Uh, so you're thinking, you know, AI, digital assets, uh, other emergent tech uh, where there are not yet appropriate regulatory structures in place. Uh, and how can we work to try to provide those regulatory uh, guardrails and, and frameworks uh, so that there's uh, efficacy moving forward? Uh, which I think is sort of a it's, it's sort of a segue to the conversation today because uh, you know a number of folks in DC say it, but you know personnel is policy, uh, and so you know you need the right people in the room, uh, you need the right people in the places of power, uh, and you need the right people to sort of guide the appropriate outcomes, uh, and that starts at the top, right? Um, it starts in the office of the presidency. Uh, so uh, very much looking forward to discussing the candidates uh, in in this race. Yeah, you know, you mentioned AI and you made me chuckle because I think we could, uh, if, if we set our, our calendar for next year at this time, I think we'll be doing the AI podcast and what that means for uh, Washington and so forth. But like you said, I want to start with the uh, the presidential debates, you know, the first one, August 23rd. Uh, I think most of us in Washington are already excited to watch this thing. Uh, this one's in Milwaukee, but uh, as of the time of this taping of this episode, on August 14th, eight individuals have qualified for the debate stage. Right. Uh, they are North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former President Donald Trump, and former Vice President Mike Pence. So the biggest question I have is, and I think a lot of other individuals have, how is this going to play with President Trump? I think it's an understatement to say that if President Trump attends, or even if he doesn't, he's going to be the force to reckon with. So what do you think the candidates are going to do in regards to President Trump? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I think you're right. Uh, he is a force. Uh, he's arguably the, the orbiting force, uh, not, not only for this debate or for this primary, uh, but one could argue that he's the sort of measure of which the, the Republican Party still defines itself to this day. Uh, and so, you know, where you are as a, you know, if you're a Republican, uh, where you are today, it's largely viewed in, in relation to uh, President Trump. You know, he maintains that level of gravitational pull uh, in the party. Um, so, you know, thinking through the different candidates that you just outlined, um, you know, we know Chris Christie is going to come out in, in, in direct opposition of Trump. Uh, he's going to try to make the anti-Trump case. Um, when I think through the other candidates, you know, they they basically have three lanes, right? They have the sort of the Chris Christie lane, the oppositional lane, uh, where it is, you know, disavow most or all of the Trump presidency. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, this will ultimately disqualify the candidate uh, because there is such a formidable Trump base that still exists. Um, and then there's what we have sort of what, what I call Trump light, uh, which is, uh, you know, 
highlighting uh, uh, their ability to advance or improve on the sort of quote unquote Trump agenda, uh, but do it with a different personality, with a different style, perhaps a more uplifting tone. Uh, and I think, you know, if you, if, you, if you look through the roster of folks that have qualified for this debate, that's where most of the other candidates fit. Um, and I, you know, there's there's other candidates that are out there that have not yet qualified for, for the debates, but I'm thinking of, you know, Mike Pence in particular, uh, which is more of this, this statesman style approach, uh, which is, you know, we want to stay above the fray. Uh, uh, and, you know, we want to uh, look at ourselves as just traditional conservatives with a long track record. Um, you know, unfortunately, what I think is that it's, it's nearly impossible because, uh, you know, questions are going to come around January 6th. They're going to come around the indictments. Uh, they're going to come around Trump's attributes and what he was able to deliver during his presidency. Um, so ultimately, what I think it's going to you know, it's going to pull back down towards Trump again because he has this force uh, and it's going to force aside uh, and likely draw the ire of Trump and his supporters. Uh, and, you know, I do not see that as a winning strategy. So what would you how if you were advising the candidates, how do you tell? So let's let's say you're advising all the non-Trump candidates. You know, what would you tell them going into this debate? And then after the debate, you know, what is a winning strategy if you're trying to, you know, build up your numbers amongst the Trump noise out there? Sure. Uh, well, so I think, you know, you kind of hit on it. Like there's going to be a heck of a lot of Trump oriented questions. Uh, and so, you know, the, the one advice I give to any challenger in a debate is to focus, uh, focus in on what will resonate with voters. Um, and I think it's important. It's, it's kind of an important point here because. Uh, we need to recognize that every single candidate in this race, save for Trump, is a challenger. Uh, unlike most elections, this is not just going to be a referendum on Biden, ultimately. Um, it's just as much a referendum on, on former President Trump and his presidency as well. Um, and so candidates, you know, they need to present something new. Uh, they, they can't, to the best extent possible, they cannot rehash and litigate old issues, uh, regardless of the types of questions that are posed to them. Um, and so I think the best way to do that is to differentiate uh, themselves through an economic focused message. If you think about it, the economy is the number one kitchen table topic issue today. Uh, it's the number one area that Americans believe is not going well for them. They uh, either don't see a, a path forward uh, as it relates to the economy, or they think the economy can be doing better than it is doing right now. Um, and so I think uh, you know, to the extent possible, if they can pivot away from any of the culture wars or anything else that we're seeing happening right now, focus in on the economy uh, and deliver a fresh and uplifting vision of what can be done and do it in a memorable way, then they've done their job. Uh, they likely will be able to gain momentum and they'll likely be able to uh, establish themselves further into this race. So I, I'm going to ask, are, do you see, it's, this is actually a two-part question, do you see any other candidates or potentially dark horse candidates, I'm thinking of former Arkansas Governor Issa Hutchinson, or, you know, even though he hasn't said that he wants to do it, my governor of Virginia, you know, Glenn Youngkin, do you ever, do you see any of, anybody who's not on that debate stage coming in and posing a serious moment or, you know, getting serious momentum? And then second part of that question is, are the non-establishment candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy or on the Democratic side, Robert Kennedy Jr., something to keep their eyes on? Is it a mistake for the establishment to ignore them? 
Sure. You know, I'll, I'll try to go through them uh, one by one. I think, you know, w- with Hutchinson, you know, I think he wants to present himself as sort of this classic Republican model. Um, but he is coming at it very much from a, the anti-Trump uh, approach, very, very similar to Chris Christie. Um, you know, he's pulling around 1%. Uh, uh, there isn't much about his campaign that, in my belief, can gain traction at the national level. Um, and I just don't think there's a national appetite uh, among GOP primary voters to see him through. Uh, you know, Pence, of course, you know, he wants to move on from the Trump presidency. Uh, and refocus voters on this uh, traditional conservative values that he's long espoused. Um, uh, so he's 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 doing his best to remind voters of that long-standing record. Uh, but he's also trying to have it both ways. He's trying to highlight the you know some of some of the positive work that he did during the Trump uh, administration. Uh, but at the same time, he's forever tied to Trump. Um, and so ultimately, I think that's where we land uh, with him. Uh, I think you, you mentioned uh, Glenn Youngkin. Uh, to me, I think he has the best shot of, of, of potentially being someone who comes out of the gate very late, um, but could spark you know interest and, and gain traction. You know, he's he's my hometown governor, uh, and you know I'd, I'd not have said this uh, just even a few months ago, but uh, I think the, the 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 case is becoming a bit clearer today because you have so many major donors, uh, and you have a good amount of voters who aren't convinced by any of these second choices that are making the debate stage. Um, and you know, you take that, you put it alongside uh, the mounting Trump liabilities, uh, which all might prove to be too much, uh, and then you stack it against where he's at in his home state. Uh, his approval rating now is fifty-seven percent uh, in, in, in Virginia. You know, Biden won it by ten points, um, and so I think you know the calculus for him is, um, you know, do I do it now? Do I do it in twenty twenty-eight? Um, and you sort of look at that from the lens of uh, another candidate in the race, Chris Christie, um, who uh, had the momentum uh, back, you know, when he was uh, very popular in New Jersey. Uh, and then he saw his fortunes turn in New Jersey uh, for the worse. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot, a lot to be uh, said in November. And I think in particular, um, if he's able to uh, implement his agenda. In, in, in Virginia. So um, in, in some ways, it hinges on the Virginia State Assembly. Um, the Virginia GOP needs to preserve its majority in the House. It needs to flip the Senate. Um, and then he's able to sort of implement the agenda, not look as if he's leaving the job unfinished, and then perhaps make a move for the presidency. Uh, and you just sort of look at his style. Um, he comes across as very positive, very enthusiastic. Um, some, you know, Comparatively speaking, common sense on the issues, um, so you could you could see a move for him. And I think it should be noted for those of you who aren't familiar with U.S. politics or at least Virginia politics, Virginia governors are limited to one term. Right. Uh, exactly. So, you know, Governor Youngkin is out of a job in uh, in, in a few years. Um, so. He, you know, let's talk about Governor DeSantis for a minute, because there's a lot of press about Governor DeSantis and and the resets. And you even saw a Bloomberg headline about a recess of reset of a reset. Um, you know, there's also another Bloomberg headline about lack of donor support. You know, I saw we saw him in Iowa just uh, over the weekend trying to drum up support at the Iowa State Fair. Can Governor DeSantis come back and capture some of the magic that I think he had uh, in the end of 2022? Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think I read that headline, but yeah, we're we're probably somewhere around the the second, third, or fourth reset at this point. Uh, but I think it, you know it it all goes. It's all for the same reason. Uh, 
the campaign, you know, when initiated and, and to date, uh, it, it was it was too scripted. It, it was too consultant heavy, and, and it showed. Um, it was a campaign by committee, uh, and it was not an authentic start. Um, so I think the saying now is, you know, let Ron be Ron. Uh, I think my addition to that is, uh, not every candidate necessarily needs to be a great retail politician. Um, I th- I think Governor DeSantis would agree that you know he's probably not as effective as Trump uh, or other challengers that are on this campaign trail. Um, but where he likely has the edge is that uh, he can lean into policy areas that he's already proven uh, that resonate with GOP voters um, that has helped propel him to this national stage. Um, so instead of the combative talk that we've seen to date uh, around culture wars and uh, related issues, which I just don't think are resonating because they don't come across as authentic, uh, they, they in some ways come across as a complaint as opposed to a solution. Um, I think he needs to go back to what he's that what moved him into this place, which is the Florida model, as you know, it's what he called it. Uh, and so, looking at uh, the Florida model of economics, uh, which is you know de facto free market economics, uh, and the ability to expand the pie. So uh, it's no longer an us versus them uh, conversation. Um, it's much more solutions oriented, and it's expanding the pie. Um, so, and, and this kind of goes back to my, my general advice for all the candidates that are moving into the debate um, uh, stage of, of this race, which is focus on the economy. Um, so I think he has a great chance to do that in the upcoming debate. Um, and I'd say just for him, you know, build on that. Um, don't try to be everything for everyone. Um, not every politician necessarily feels right at home at state fairs in Iowa or, or bars or diners. Um, but I think you know what is most important is voters do immediately pick up on a candidate that is not being authentic. Uh, so uh, it goes back to you know relatively simple advice, which is you know just stay on a message uh, and, and and stay focused on what you actually believe you can deliver. Uh, and if you're true to who you are, keep it simple and drill that message home. You know, I think there are some out there that just presume that President Trump this is his nomination. And I'm going to ask you a leading question. The question is essentially is you know, if you look back at some of the prior elections, you know, 2016, you know, 2012 and so forth like that, when the Republicans were going through the nomination process, it almost seemed like every month somebody else was the hot person or the person who was going to win that nomination. You know, here we are in August of 2023, the election is November 2024. You know, there's still plenty of time for any of these candidates to come back, right? Okay. So, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where I think a lot of, you know, clients that I've spoken to and a lot of people, at least in the, in the, in the markets, just presume that President Trump has this in the bag. But you would say it's, it, that, uh, you know, there's still there's plenty of chances for the other candidates. So, okay. So are there any candidates out there that you feel that are running to build up a brand name position? And I'm thinking of like Mayor Pete, you know, he comes from the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Nobody really anticipated him doing this well, and he was able to transport this into a secretary of transportation uh, position. Are there candidates out there that you think are just running for the sake of running and maybe not even, you know, trying to get the presidency? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think this this time around, it, it might be a bit different. You know, I think, uh, of course, uh, Ramaswamy is coming into this 
certainly looking to build up his national profile. To what end, I am unclear. Um, I don't know if he'd accept a cabinet position. Um, but then if you sort of go down the slate of folks um, that are on the debate stage or hoping to be, get on the debate stage at some point, uh, it's hard for me to see at this point um, a DeSantis or, or a Scott or a Haley uh, or certainly a Chris Christie uh, looking to find a role in a second uh, Trump administration. Um, and so I think, you know, whereas before uh, we had some political aspirants that were, were, were coming up uh, and could find themselves closely aligned uh, with uh, President Biden. Um, here, I think there's more of an advers- adversarial uh, nature to this campaign. Um, so it would be difficult to navigate it at this point. Um, but I certainly think, you know, Ramaswamy in particular uh, has done an excellent job of building up his national profile um, because one, he's articulate. Two, he doesn't back down from his views. Uh, you know, third, he is uh, just a regular uh, on cable news each night. Uh, and he's constantly, you know, putting forward um, what is uh, new to, to, to many folks tuning in uh, because of uh, how pointed he is in his remarks, how, how direct he is in his remarks. And I think a lot of folks find that, frankly, refreshing uh, from general political discourse. I, I saw a couple of tweets from some Republicans in Iowa that said that he also uh, got some brownie points because he was the first one to sign the pledge that he would support any GOP nominee, right. uh, you know, if uh, no matter who it is in, in the general election. So uh, so I want to take this a little bit to back to President Trump. Um, you know, President Trump has been indicted several times and we potentially have an indictment in Georgia coming as soon as next week. You know, with those indictments comes trials, and we've seen dates from January 2nd to March 2024. How does it play out when President Trump is campaigning on weekends and potentially in court during the week? Uh, is, do you think this is going to have an impact on Republican primary voters and or are the other candidates going to try and take advantage of this? Uh, you know, it, it, it's unprecedented, uh, but uh, as with Trump, many things are unprecedented. Uh, so, you know, the way that we're sort of seeing it now, uh, every indictment, every legal action, uh, there's an influx in donations, either you know directly to the Trump campaign or to the Trump legal fund. Uh, and so much of campaigning today, if you, you know, sort of think about it, uh, it's cash on hand, uh, and it's the ability to use the media uh, and to use technology to drive the message. Uh, and if you think back to 2016. Uh, he took a very unorthodox approach to earning earned media uh, to really just drive his message home. Uh, And so this ongoing legal saga will keep him in the headlines throughout the entirety of of, of 2023 into 2024. Uh, And that's where he needs to be. That's where at least that's where he wants to be. Um, uh, Because, you know, I think if you step back, he's essentially running uh, a continuance of this grievance campaign that he's had. Um, and it can likely get him pretty far. Um, and so at this point, it's working. Uh, it's hard to say at which point voters will break, um, perhaps become tired of the legal drama. Um, but I think if you look at, you know, at any point throughout his presidency, um, there was always questions around, um, you know, at what point will folks tire of President Trump and his personality? Um, and I think, you know, the proof now from, from what we're, we're seeing from GOP voters is they've not tired. They've become reinvigorated. Uh, and so uh, that could continue forward through 2024. So I want to 
I want to now switch to the no labels campaign and the third, this potential third party candidate. And this is something that scares my Democratic friends all the time, that this idea that somebody like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin could run as a third party, potentially giving Trump the victory. Do you think this is a serious? Do you think the no labels campaign is serious or just talk? Or, and is this something the Democrats really should be worried about? Sure. Uh, well, you know, as a Democrat myself, uh, it, it is a concern for me. Um, uh, you know, so the claim, generally speaking, from no labels is that um, they need a viable path to victory. Uh, and so, you know, what they're doing now is trying to feel that they, they're looking at, uh, as I believe, you know, uh, Senator Manchin, John Huntsman, others who could potentially fill this role. Um, they're trying to put forward uh, their well, they're fielding polls, trying to put forward polls that show that this path exists. Um, simply put, in my opinion, or not, not even necessarily my opinion, just sort of looking at the facts, uh, it doesn't exist. Um, it's somewhat of a fallacy. I think the third party candidate model sort of reached its high watermark with George Wallace uh, back in 1968 when he won 13% of the vote. You're not uh, even giving Ross Perot the, uh, you're not giving Ross well, Perot any love? Well, you know, Ross Perot, kind of a different story, uh, you know, for his own sort of like, you know, some of the, some of the personal issues that uh, arose during that, that campaign. Uh, but, you know, I, I also say that no labels is not a joke. Um, it's a, it, it is a true threat to the Democratic Party. Um, and I say that not just sort of future tense, but present tense. Um, because I think a lot of what they're doing now, it's holding the Democratic Party hostage with the threat of a run. Um, and so I think it just kind of needs to be called what it's been called numerous times already, uh, not just from myself, not just from Democratic operatives, but uh, just as much so from Republican operatives, which is it's a spoiler campaign for uh, President Biden. Um, and so I think, you know, you can, you can also just sort of look into the funding of no labels at this point, which is largely GOP donors. Um, and you look across the full spectrum of the Democratic Party, uh, from progressives to centrists, um, they're all against it because they're all looking at the key states in which these margins would matter. Um, and it all goes against President Biden and would go for the GOP candidate, which at this time presumably is President uh, Trump. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, no labels, you know, they've done some good work at the state level. Um, if they want to maintain true to their, their mission, um, I'd say, uh, it's time to call an end to this operation. Um, and at, at this point, really, it's just going to be siphoning off uh, enough votes in key states to allow Trump to win. Um, and what I hope they recognize is that the work that they're doing, um, they could get a bit ahead of themselves. Um, you know, they could get on enough state ballots that they'd have this option in place. Uh, and that in itself would siphon off votes. Um, so you know, that's that's the, the general concern at, at this point in time. So uh, I know it's too early to say what's going to happen with the election, but there are there any industries that you think are exposed from the 2024 election? And this could be the Democrats winning or the Republicans winning. You know, I've had some clients ask me, what are the chances of the IRA being overturned under a Republican president? Um, what are you telling your clients? Sure. Uh, well, I'll start with the IRA. Um, I think, you know, Zero chance. Uh, I think it's campaign trail talk. Um, I think, you know, just sort of look at it. You know, where's the money flowing uh, from the IRA? It's going to Texas. It's going to New Mexico. It's going to the heartland. It's going to red states. Uh, so you can talk about ripping up a bill on a campaign trail, and that's fine. Uh, but if you are um, a president, presidential candidate that makes it into office, the last thing you do is 
rip out good paying jobs in red states as a Republican. Uh, it, it just makes no sense from an economic perspective, no sense from a policy perspective, certainly no sense from a political perspective. So, uh, you know, there, there might be some marginal tweaks that go into that, uh, but I'd, I'd be shocked if, if there was a repeal. Um, now if you think about just industry more broadly, uh, you mentioned at the onset, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I do with uh, different firms on Wall Street, um, I think, you know, nearly every industry wants this, this sort of the same two things from every party, which is degree of certainty uh, that they can operate effectively uh, and the ability to operate without overly burdensome regulations. Um, so if you're trying to compare, uh, you know, a second term uh, President Biden with a, a newcomer uh, or President Trump in um, uh, 2024, uh, if Biden wins re-election, um, which I personally think will happen, um, you know, we'll see sort of the same industries under scrutiny that are currently under scrutiny. So I think we're, we're going to see that in the banking industry um, as it relates to capital requirements and consolidation. Of course, you know, that's largely driven by um, what is, uh, you know, is, is the Fed te technically like independent? Um, but I think, you know, a lot of that, again, going back to the idea of, you know, personnel in place, um, I think, you know, there'll be some, some uh, scrutiny there. Um, and then I think you broaden that out a bit, uh, the, the investment industry um, and generally all firms, which DC likes to characterize as Wall Street, um, there is a lot of concern specifically around M&A. Uh, I think if you look across all the regulatory bodies, the FTC has been the most aggressive. Um, you look across you know, horizontal, vertical mergers, essentially mergers of all type. Uh, I don't see that slowing down, uh, regardless of, of how many court losses they rack up along the way. Uh, so I think that is absolutely a concern uh, across industry. Conversely, I think if you look at the Republican Party, uh, you know, if they win the presidency. Um, it's going to be a major setback uh, in all the industries that are focused on renewables uh, and, and climate focused solutions. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's very much... Um, company by company, and even then like executive by executive. Um, I don't think you can really take many industries and break them out specifically as Republicans and, and Democratic leaning, um, with the exception perhaps of sort of the oil and gas industry. I think they'd very much like to see a Republican back in place. Um, but, you know, apart from that, um, it goes back to uh, certainty uh, and ability to operate. So you gave us a view on the White House. If you, What's your one year ahead, and we won't hold you to this uh, view on the Senate and the House. Uh, sure. Uh, so, with with the cat with the strong caveat that everything can change at least sort of a moment's notice, I'd say the House in particular is a bit tricky. Uh, you know, there's there, there there there's pending litigation on redistricting in in, in New York, um, and there was plenty of close races last cycle. Um, but, you know, what I think we've seen is that uh, there's factions developing in the House, uh, amongst House Republicans that are on full display. Um, and that's the limelight you get when you are in the majority. Um, and so, you know, you start back with just the battle for the speaker's gavel. Uh, and then you look at the disagreements uh, that are occurring with the Freedom Caucus, uh, votes being held up on the floor, uh, myriad other issues. Uh, and so I think the Republican message on the House side, it's a bit scattered at the moment. Uh, while the Democratic message is more cohesive uh, and we're seeing some actionable wins come through with, uh, you know, first anniversary of TRIPS, uh, soon to be first anniversary of uh, the IRA, uh, where there's 
actually more shovels in the ground across districts. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looping in here sort of the infrastructure bill as well. Um, so I'd say if, if, I, if I had to make a prediction today, uh, which I hate to make these predictions, but the House would likely flip back under Democratic control, uh, but it would be close margins. Um, on the other side of the Hill, um, I think the Senate remains extremely close, um, but it stays under Democratic leadership. Um, we would certainly not see much movement either way. Uh, we'd uh, not get to the 60 votes that I know both parties want, uh, but that's ultimately where I think we'd end up if it was happening today. And I promise we will not hold you to it because I gave a speech probably 10 days before the 2016 election saying that President Trump had no chance of becoming president. So uh, I, I certainly uh, uh, will not hold you to it. Um, the last question that we have for you, and this is the most difficult question I think we have of all of ours, is, and this is something we ask all of our readers, is if you were stranded on a desert island, what three pieces of music or album would you bring? Ah, okay. Well, yes, the, the, the hardest question for last. Uh, uh, let's see, my, my taste in music, it's a bit all over the map. Um, the first first artist that sort of comes to mind, uh, probably one that your, your listeners might not know, uh, but I'm a, a, a longtime fan of uh, an artist named Melody Gardo. Um, she blends jazz and Brazilian traditions and folk and pop together. Uh, so I definitely take one of her albums along with me. Um, and then I probably, you know, I'm a big fan of 90s hip hop. Uh, so something from that era, uh, would absolutely come along with me. Um, and then I, you know, I think if you're stranded on a, a desert Island, you need Bob Marley. So, uh, I think <laughs> one, of, one of Bob Marley's, uh, albums, probably his greatest, his album legends, uh, would come along with me as well. I seem, I think, I seem to recall Mar, uh, Melody Gardot was over at the Kennedy Center uh, recently. Um, so yeah, anyway, yes, that was uh, we 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 enjoy asking all of our guests that because uh, you, it's just a fun thing to uh, see what people's tastes in music are. So uh, with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. Uh, James, we are extremely grateful for you for your time and for appearing on the episode. Uh, we thought it was very uh, informative, and we thank you, the listener, for taking the time to join us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg Intelligence research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. Thank you again, and have a great day. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.